0: As we consider Lord's Day 48 for our sermon focus this evening, the words of Scripture we want to use to support that we find first in Psalm 119. Turn to Psalm 119, where we will read from verses 5 to 8. Psalm 119, verse 5 to 8. And please note the the pleading cry of the psalmist, how he desires to walk all the more in God's ways and to know his commandments and to live for his praise and glory. At verse 5, we read God's holy word. The psalmist says, "'Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments.'" I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn of your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. And then we go to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, to chapter 8, where we have the narrative account of Philip the Evangelist going down to Gaza. Desert country, and we know the story there how the Lord used him to bring to faith the Ethiopian eunuch. So, turning to Acts 8, we read in verse 26 to verse 40. Now, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah. And said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and to sit with him. And the place in the scripture which he read was this He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who can declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And so the eunuch asked Philip and said, I ask of you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now, when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing, but Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities, till he came to Caesarea. And then we turn to our last piece of scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we read verse 20 to 28, that well-known piece of scripture concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead that we have, which Christ first experienced for us. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed. Is death. For he who has put all things under his feet, for he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all and in all. So far from the reading of Holy Scripture. And now please turn with me to Lord's Day 48. You can find that on page 895 in the back of the Trinity hymnals. Lord's Day 48, where we consider the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. Page 895. Lord's Day 48, in question 123. What does the second petition mean? Your kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church, destroy the devil's work, destroy every force which revolts itself against you, and every conspiracy against your holy word do all this until your kingdom fully comes when you will be all in all now dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ it was with great power and force that the mission work of Jesus Christ concerning the establishment of the kingdom of heaven as it began to advance in those days it went, for, went forward with great power and with great grace poured out by God Jesus Christ when he came into Galilee Luke 4 verse uh, 4 says that he returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee with great divine power the kingdom of God being established would continue to advance and that was the power that Philip the evangelist also was very sure of the great power to go forth with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and we see God was directing all his ways and calling him uh, to action if you will to implement that grace of God in Jesus Christ and it's for this that Jesus calls his church to pray. To pray for this, thy kingdom come. To pray for the coming of the kingdom and all its fullness and glory. Not only in Jerusalem, but we see also in Judea and Samaria and finally to the ends of the earth. And, and we see that advancing in the, in the letters of the Apostle Paul and in the work of those who were called to work with him. The kingdom of God was advancing being maintained by the Word of God and the Spirit of God, our Father in Heaven. And it's for this that Jesus teaches us to pray as we get busy with our prayers and we begin to focus on what we are to pray for. The Lord calls us to this. Thy kingdom come, having begun with our Father who art in Heaven, and hallowed be thy name. Now this grand subject, this very uh, intentional uh, purpose we have to also pray for the coming of the kingdom of God and all its glory make sure this too is a very important part of your prayer life we would say first things first as we pray for his glory for his will and for his kingdom pray thy kingdom come now the kingdom of God congregation the essence of the kingdom is simply the rule of God in our hearts through Jesus Christ by His Word and Spirit, so that all our lives and all our living more and more comes under the dominion of of God, our Father who is in heaven. We see that that kingdom, therefore, is very personal. It, it affects it 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 impacts each one of us. It's very spiritual in nature, and yet it's also corporate. It's something we share, and that we manifest together as the body of Christ. The Catechism goes on to explain what that all means. When it asks the question, what does the second petition that is of the Lord's Prayer mean? Your kingdom come means, rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. What are we really praying for first? Well, we are praying for the spiritual life transformation life-transforming rule of Christ in us. When the Catechism uses that word rule us, that word rule is a, is a word intentionally chosen because that is exactly what we want God to do. We want him to rule us. We want him to, to manifest that rule, to manifest that government over us, and that rule is grace-filled. His rule is filled with his graciousness and his love for his people. And that is a life-transforming rule of Jesus Christ in us by his word and spirit. And that's what you are to be praying for. And that's what you also want to continually see happening in your life. Ministers shouldn't only practice what they preach, but Christians should, should, should practice what they pray. Practice what they pray for, that transforming rule of Christ in us more and more. Well, congregation, how does that actually begin to happen in our lives? Well, I've chosen the passage in Acts chapter 8, and I believe it's basically a pattern of how people come under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, how they come under the government of our covenant God, and it happens in this kind of a way we read in acts chapter 8 and verse 26 now an angel of the lord spoke to philip saying arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from jerusalem to gaza and this is desert see how it is who the lord that the lord begins to direct he begins to command a people to be called out of darkness and to come into his light is god who directs the building of his kingdom. He commanded Philip where Philip had to go. And what can Philip do? He, he can only obey, of course. And that is what we read in chapter, in, in verse uh, 27 and 8. So he, that is Philip, arose and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had, had charge of all her treasury, and had come from Jerusalem to worship was now returning he was going home again and sitting in his chariot he was reading isaiah the prophet how how wonderful for the lord to establish his kingdom and to call his people out of darkness they need to come in contact with the gospel somehow some way and uh, and here we see the Ethiopian eunuch. He'd been to Jerusalem to worship, but how much of the gospel really did he know? It seems like not much, but he somehow got a hold of the scroll of of, of, of Isaiah. And he began to read and to investigate, but he had many questions. But the important thing was he came in contact with the gospel but see again how the Spirit of God then takes charge, eh, to keep the, the ball moving, so to speak. We read in verse twenty nine to, to thirty-one. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near, overtake the chariot. So Philip ran to him. He's an obedient servant. He he's got his legs, he runs, and he, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I? Unless someone guides me. And he asked Philip to come up with him. See how the Holy Spirit put Philip in the right situation where he was called upon to begin teaching, explaining, showing what God meant through the words of Isaiah that the Ethiopian eunuch was all puzzled about. He had to guide the Ethiopian in the truth before that life-transforming rule of Jesus Christ could come into his heart. You see, that's what's the focus here. How do we enter the kingdom of God? How was he to come in? The Word of God had to to uh, impact his heart. He had to be taught the Word of God. And so, under the spirit's unction, he invites Philip, a total stranger to him, to come up into the chariot and sit beside him on the bench and to begin to explain what he had been reading. And guess what? This is what he read. These very beautiful words, well known to us from Isaiah, concerning Jesus Christ. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter As a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Here is the gospel. Philip hears what the Ethiopian is reading. And now must begin that task of explaining and teaching and of preaching. And so we read further in verse 34, So the eunuch a- answered Philip and said, I ask of you, of whom does the prophet say this, this business about a lamb who was as a sheep to the slaughter? Uh, who is he saying this of, of himself or, or some other man? And Philip opened his mouth And beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. He began to speak of that suffering Messiah who would be a lamb, who would be led to the slaughter, who would be put to death, who would remain silent so that he could fully fulfill the holy will of God to be offered up as a living sacrifice unto death. Yes, in Christ's own humiliation there, justice was taken away from him he he who was innocent was condemned to death his life was taken from the earth so philip begins to teach and to preach and to explain questions are asked and questions must be answered the gospel is read the gospel is preached congregation that's how the kingdom of heaven advances it wasn't Philip's own strategy to go to this place. It wasn't Philip's own wisdom that he dreamed up in his head, but it was the God breathed word of God. It was God directed, it was spirit empowered, it was word centered, and it was Christ preached. That's the essence of the spiritual stuff or the mechanism by which you enter the kingdom of heaven. And then, of course, the Ethiopian had to believe. Not only had to had had he to to read and to try to understand, but he had to believe. If he too was to be part of the kingdom of heaven, and so Philip challenges him there. And Philip said, "If you believe with all your heart, you may." That is to say, you may be baptized. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. See what has taken place? The word of God has been put into play. God's servant has began to teach and to preach. The Holy Spirit has converted him. And the Ethiopian makes a good confession. How important it is, young people, when you make a public profession of your faith. It is essential to your seeking and becoming a uh, And experiencing that full membership in the kingdom of heaven. You too must say what the Ethiopian did. I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And on that basis he was baptized. We read in verse 38. And he also then went on his way rejoicing. The point is the Ethiopian eunuch became a brand new man. A man who once had lived in darkness. His life was now being spiritually transformed by the power of Christ, that lamb who was slain. Yes, he had gotten hold of him. And the rule of Christ by his word and by the Holy Spirit came into his life. The Ethiopian realized he was no longer his own man or his own boss, but he began then to belong to Jesus Christ, his faithful Savior, who had fully paid for all his sins and set him free from the tyranny of the devil. The Ethiopian would have become a Lord's Day one man, a Lord's Day one man. My only comfort in life and in death is that I belong to my faithful Savior. But the point here is, congregation, regarding the second request of the Lord's Prayer is that the eunuch was transformed into a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom, now to be ruled. Now to be ruled by God through Jesus Christ. I would say, welcome to the kingdom of God. You are under the rulership. You are under the kingship of another, namely Christ. The Ethiopian began to pray a brand new prayer for himself. And I trust that that is a very important part of your prayer. You might say, well, I've become a member of God's kingdom already 30, 40 years ago. Well, so what? You keep right on praying for that life-transforming work of Christ to continue in you and that you keep making that good confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and come what may, I will serve him. I will submit to God's holy will. And uh, in all our life... uh, act out or practice the first sentence of the answer to Lord's Day 48. Your kingdom come means rule us. Rule me. Rule this congregation by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. And there's that word submit. A word that most people don't like too much, it rubs them the wrong way very quickly. But submission to God is a most critical, important part of your Christian life and what it means to be a member of the kingdom of heaven. For you see, the life transforming work of Jesus Christ and that rulership is a rule that doesn't leave you alone or leave you unchanged. Indeed, it changes you. So that you, so that we become a better people, a godly people, a growing in grace kind of people, a growing in the knowledge of God kind of people, a growing in faith, hope, and love, obedient to Christ kind of people. You see how how practical this second petition to the Lord's Prayer becomes? Thy kingdom come, meaning so rule in me in such a way that that more and more I submit to you? People might say, you've got to be kidding. I say, no, I'm not. But this is the stuff of the kingdom of heaven to be ruled in such a way. The Ethiopia now began to be ruled in such a way that he was going to also submit to to God, to the government of God, his Father in heaven. And congregation, that is really what we see in this piece of scripture from Psalm 119 that we read a few moments ago of the psalmist who also was struggling and searching and wanting to be faithful to God and wanting to know how can I live before the face of God in a way that is pleasing to him? How can I live rightly we might want to say, he says, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. As if to say, my ways aren't nearly always directed in that way. But, oh God, oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart. I will, when, when I learn of your righteous judgments, why I will keep your statutes. So do not forsake me utterly. utterly. Do, you, do you hear kind of the angst, the, the desire and the prayer of the psalmist, how we wanted to be ruled by God's statutes, how we wanted to be in submission to them more and more. He told God, I want, I want my ways to be directed by you so that I keep your statutes. I, I need to keep looking into your commandments that is to say in order to obey them so that I will not be ashamed. If we do not look into God's commandments regularly, if it's not our priority to, to, to keep them with all our heart, though we fall so short so often, but if that's not our priority, we easily become ashamed because of the sin we involve ourselves with. And so the psalmist says, when I look into all your commandments... He says in verse six, "When I looked in, I w- then I would not be ashamed when I looked into all your commandments." And so here is the thing that he wants to make sure that he is doing as he is living under that life-transforming rule of his Messiah. And he ends by saying there, "Oh, do not forsake me utterly," as if to say, "God, please keep hanging on to me, lest I go down into the pit." I want so much to be your servant, to walk in your ways, to keep your commands. I want to be a child in your kingdom. We're praying for this congregation as we bring these words to our lips in various forms Thy kingdom come in me first, in you first. That's how we must pray. You know, we can't settle for any kind of mediocre kind of Christianity where we still allow ourselves all kinds of wiggle room to sin as we please and hopefully we think we can get away with it and a quick prayer to God and it will all be forgiven again. Oh no, the Lord is calling us here through these words that we see in Lord's, Lord's Day 48 to more and more be in submission. To our God. And that has to be a pleasing, loving response for the great salvation that He has first given to us. And this is our call, brothers and sisters, as we hear these words concerning the second petition. And at the end of the day, we can say, Oh Lord God, please do not forsake me. Utterly, I'm a man of sin, I'm a woman of sin. I need your grace again so much tomorrow morning as soon as I begin a new day. I need you then too, O Lord, do not forsake me. I have your commands to keep. I have your name to praise and to honor. But then, congregation, moving on, we see that the words, thy kingdom come. We secondly also pray for the church's flourishing and for the church's protection. Now we see that corporate dimension concerning the second petition. The question again asks, what does the second petition mean? Well, secondly, preserve and increase your church. Now we go from focus on self to the church, to all God's people. Destroy the devil's work and destroy every force which revolts itself against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. The authors of the catechism sure knew what they were talking about, congregation, when they developed this answer in the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary to what the Bible taught concerning the second commandment. The authors of the catechism were all too well aware of the vicious assault of the devil against the church, of Jesus Christ in the 16th century, when the Heidelberg Catechism was written. We know that at that time, through most of Europe, Western Europe, the Word of God was all but silenced away out of the churches. There was indeed an evil conspiracy against the proclamation of the Word of God, a conspiracy that began with the king of France and worked all the way down, and and involve the Pope himself to, in every way possible, stop the preaching of the Word of God. And that's why when graduates from Calvin's Geneva Academy went out to begin their work in the ministry, so often the graduates, uh, they died almost as quickly as they graduated because of the horrendous persecution against the church and against these young men called to the ministry. The church, we could say, was really under the cross. The gospel was banned from the pulpits of Europe. And instead, people were called upon to look to religious relics. And they would collect these things and bring them into the churches for the people to look at, claiming, oh, here's a little piece of the cross, or here's one of the bones of one of the apostles, or here's a piece of the garment that Mary wore, and and all these sorts of nonsensical things were used and people were to look to these things and to be somehow spiritually nourished and fed by these things and be filled with a sense of hope. Religious relics were, a, were really an anathema to the church. And then there was, of course, the focus upon praying to images, praying to saints, praying to statues, bowing down to them within... Uh, their Roman Catholic churches instead of looking to Christ having no knowledge of him but trying to find somehow some knowledge by praying to saints and seeking their guidance we can add to that the corruption of the sacraments and the doctrines of divine grace it all showed a church that was under siege by the devil and all his cohorts make a long story short the church in the 16th century was not flourishing at all it was It was in the process of dying, as it were. And so Zacharias, or Sinus, who wrote much of the Catechism, knew from experience what he was writing when he summarized the Bible's teaching here. Thy kingdom come, what does it mean? It means preserve and increase your church. God, help us or we die, is the point. Destroy the devil's work, destroy every force which revolts itself against you, every conspiracy against your holy word. O congregation, the wiles of the devil are great. The wickedness of the devil to destroy the church from within and from without is just as strong and real today as it was back then. How many thousands were put to death for their faith in the 16th century? Hundreds of thousands. And yet the Lord saw it all happen he heard the prayers of his saints in those days, and he was increasing. He was even preserving his church, even though so many were put to death by horrible persecution. And we haven't seen anything like that here, but congregation, who knows what might come here when we see the evil forces of, of Satan that are increasingly being brought to the fore to destroy the truth of the gospel, to destroy our faith, to make us doubt what is the truth, and so on. And yet through it all we see the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ruler yet, he is the head of his church, and he rules over his kingdom wondrously. The very thing that he began to do with his early church, he continues to do for his church today. And we have great hope of these things, congregation, when we read what Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 20, verse 22, where Paul says, For in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign, and there's the point, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is what our Lord congregation has been busy with as he has caused the gospel to go to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Christ is reigning over his church, to be sure, And he's conquering every kingdom of men, of man that has come to the foreground in the past 20 centuries. And he continues to reign, Paul says, until God the Father puts all his enemies under his feet. That about says everything, doesn't it, concerning the victory and the security and the prosperity of the kingdom of God. We have here a picture of the total defeat of all Jesus Christ's enemies, even the very last enemy, namely death, is going to be destroyed as well. And so, brothers and sisters, as we again hear this prayer, thy kingdom come, we pray for the preservation and the increase of the church, but also the destruction of all the devil's work, the very thing Paul was talking about when he said that God the Father was going to put everything under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the wicked kingdoms of men were going to be squashed, put to death finally under the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we pray, we pray in a sense going on the offensive for the sake of God who calls us to pray for the advance and the completion of his kingdom. We go on the offensive. We are in a spiritual battle, aren't we? We're not here twiddling our thumbs and thinking, man, what a nice, fine Christian life I got here. Everything's so nice and cozy here. I'm, I'm home free. I'm on, the, I'm on the victory road. No, we have a battle to fight. We have prayers to pray. We have enemies to, to defeat, and if we cannot defeat them by our own strength, certainly we are to be praying en masse for the destruction of the enemies of Christ. This, too, is part and parcel of being citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Like the Ethiopian began to be in his chariot as he was heading home, he had a whole new life before him now, a whole new battle plan in effect before him too. He had to pray for the coming of the kingdom of heaven and for God to increase and preserve his church by his means. A church would be planted in Ethiopia in the first century One of the first elders in the church may have been this very man, the Ethiopian eunuch. And God was on the way, on the march, building his church, preserving his church, even until Jesus Christ would return. And all the while we have the promise, our Lord says, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church now I almost gave the answer away but my next question is how long do we pray how long do we keep this up well certainly all the days of our lives but we have here an answer at the end of the question of Lord's Day 48 do this until your kingdom fully comes for God to do his work to be sure for Jesus Christ to gather into his, in, in his elect to be sure, but for us as well to keep on praying, do this until your kingdom fully comes, when you will be all in all. And, and there we see the end. There we see the finish line. There we see what we all have been working for and even suffering for and, and paying our, our, our monies for, so to speak. It is that this final moment would come when the glorious kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ would be fully consummated. And we, of course, would thus meet the Lord our God himself. Brothers and sisters, pray also for now the completion and the perfect end of God's heavenly kingdom. Pray for its eternal glory. And that means, brothers and sisters, we really need to be heavenly-minded people, I know you're busy with all kinds of very good and important things. Praise God for that. But we need to also ever ever be heavenly minded or focus upon God's kingdom as well. I pray you're not too busy making your own little kingdom on this earth. There's always that danger to do that. Might the kingdom of God maybe be a bit of an afterthought in your life? I pray not. Now then is the day to repent of that kind of a complacency where we find ourselves too busy with the things of this world. And the kingdom of God is like a sidetrack kind of on the periphery of our life and it's kind of remote and far from us. No, now then is the day to to repent of that kind of wrong headed living, if I may use that expression, where our focus has been skewed and is off the mark, and we've forgotten to pray, Thy kingdom come, not my kingdom, not my agenda, not my investments, but Thy kingdom come, O Lord God in heaven. We have before us here, congregation, the consummation of God's glorious kingdom. And of that, the Apostle Paul, again, gives us some some wonderful instruction or insights. He says in verse 27, "...for he has put all things under his feet, namely God the Father has put all things under Jesus' feet." But when he says all things are put under him, namely Jesus, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. God the Father is not going to be under the feet of Jesus Christ. And and that he concludes with in verse 28. Now when all things are made subject to him, that is to say to, to, to Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, it is the Father who put all things under him, that God, that God may be all and in all. Congregation, as we read these words, they're perhaps not so easy to understand and to plumb the depths of, but we are left with a sense of wonder and amazement and, and awe at what God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son reigning in heaven are now busy with in terms not only of the further advancement of the kingdom, but of its maintenance and preservation until the very end of the age. They are busy with that holy, divine work of saving sinners from their sins. And here we see the the end of it, so to speak, when God says, all things, all things in earth, all things in heaven, all things in the universe will be put under Christ's feet and made subject to God the Father's eternal, supreme majesty, authority, power, and glorious rule. I'm using words, but how can we begin to describe the things in the heavens, the spiritual things in the heavens that here we find words for, but how can we really understand and see what is happening and how it's going to end? When God will fill all things with his divine goodness and glory and beauty, and the, and all things are filled with all the riches of his wisdom and peace and his love and, and fellowship in a way that we cannot imagine, in a way that we would possibly never grow weary of, not in a thousand ages to come, so grand, so glorious, so all-consuming and and how God will be all in all. All the enemies have been put under Christ's feet. This is what we're praying for, brothers and sisters. Do all this until your kingdom fully comes when you will be all in all. It's one of the hardest things for me to consider explaining further because it's beyond the reach, beyond the scope of our minds and our imaginations, our thinking. We let these words speak for themselves and we're left with mystery and awe and wonder at that great day which is coming when it is the Father's good pleasure to give his children the kingdom in all its glory when his only begotten Son himself comes as the all-glorious God and King, our Savior. Since these things are coming, brothers and sisters, since everything is moving in this direction for sure, will we not then happily submit more and more to being a faithful citizen in God's kingdom in submission to his holy will. This is our prayer. This is stuff of what it is to be a Christian, to look forward with unspeakable hope and glory, with an unspeakable sense of security and comfort and knowledge concerning this truth of the kingdom of heaven. It has come, Please pray for its coming until all things are accomplished according to God's holy word. Keep on praying, brothers and sisters, for the coming of this kingdom, for the glory of God, and for the well-being of you and your family and the church of Jesus Christ. Amen.